This is an ABC podcast. I think I can safely say there weren't many Zen monks around where Paul Haller grew up. Belfast in the 1950s and 60s was all about Protestants and Catholics and the increasingly violent conflict between them. Paul grew up in a tough part of town and he trained to be an engineer with the aim of helping his family have a better life. But then, a chance conversation in a little Chinese restaurant in Tokyo led Paul down a very different path. It took him to a cave in Thailand, where he lived in silence for six months, and was ordained a Buddhist monk, and then to the heart of the counterculture in California. For many years, Paul was abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center, and he's now a senior teacher there. He's taught Zen to prisoners in San Quentin and to terminally ill people as part of the Zen Hospice Project, which he set up. Paul spends much of the year at a remote monastery set in the mountains of the Carmel Valley in California, and that's where I'm calling him today. Hi, Paul. Hi, sir. Tell me about Tassajara, this monastery that you're talking to me from. How do you travel there? How how do you get there from San Francisco? Well, you, you travel on the freeway for about 140 miles uh, from San Francisco down through Salinas up over Carmel Valley. And then the last 14 miles are a dirt road. And, and so it winds its way through um, a wilderness area. You go up a hill and you go up to 5,000 feet. You go down a couple of thousand <laughs> feet. You go up to 5,000 again. And then you go right the whole way down into a valley and you, you arrive at Tassajara, surrounded by 130,000 acres of wilderness. This range of mountains is quite young, so it, it has sort of jagged peaks and diff, deep valleys. There are a lot of trees. There's a lot of water in the bottom of the valley. It's quite unique to the area. We have sycamores, oaks, some willows on the creek. There's some mountain lions, but the mountain lions in California are a, they don't want to be around humans. So usually they disappear before you even see them. And then there's some bobcats, some foxes, lots of deer, lots of squirrels. <laughs> Those, the deer and the squirrels we see all the time. They wander through the place on a regular basis. And in Tassajara, there's a natural hot springs. And the Esalen Indians, who were the Indian tribe of this area, have for, as far as we know, for thousands of years considered this to be a sacred place. And it was established as a hot springs resort in 1850s or 60s. And then ever since then, people have been coming to, uh, to visit, to take the hot springs and to receive its healing properties. And is that true of the Zen students and, and priests today? Are you still allowed to go in those hot springs? Oh, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's part of our life. We have a Japanese-style bathhouse built over the hot springs. And in the winter, for the winter months, the winter six months, it's a, a traditional Zen monastery. And then for the five months of the summer, we, we receive guests and in, in this, throughout the summer, we receive about 70 guests a night. And what's, what's your favorite season there, Paul? You've been there over many decades. Which time of year do you enjoy the most? I, th- I think the fall. 
often the fall will linger the whole way through October. And the, the place, the, the light is wonderful. There's something about the fall that has a sense of um, ease, it's a sense of fullness, and the spring. But I think of the two, I, I prefer the fall and, and the ease. It's coming into night there now as we speak. What's the night sky like in such a remote place? Well, as you might suspect, the night sky is very clear. Even though we're not at that high, we're, we're that high up, we're, we're only at 1,300 feet. But because we're surrounded by wilderness, there's no lights coming from towns or anything. So the sky is very dark and the stars are very bright. So the sky here is startling. Uh, nearby, on the, on the way in, there's, there's an observatory, an astronomy observatory, where they, is, they set up their telescope because the sky was so clear here. And what time do you get up in the morning when you're there at Tassajara? Well, in, in the winter, we, we get up at 3.40, and in the summer, we get up about 5 o'clock. Why so early in the winter? Because we spend a lot of time meditating. <laughs> <laughs> can't, can't you meditate just as well at 7 a.m. as you can at 3? <laughs> well, what if I told you we, we start at 4 and we're still going at 7? <laughs> <laughs> Why, what's a typical day look like at the monastery in those winter months? We get up, we spend several hours meditation. Then we do chanting. Uh, that's for about another half hour. Then we have a formal eating practice that we do in the meditation hall called Oriyoki. And then after that, we, we, would, um, we have a silent sweeping and cleaning time of about 20 minutes. And then after that, we, we have a study time. And then we have a break, a short break of about 30 minutes. And then we go back to the meditation hall and there's either a talk or there's more meditation that would go up to lunchtime. And then after lunch, we have a work period from one to four. And then we have an exercise and a bath time. And then we're back in the Zendo at 5.30. And then the meditation would go on until uh, nine o'clock. That sounds, that sounds intense, Paul. Is it, does it feel demanding to you? Um. Yes, <laughs> with, with, with the qualifier. The, the qualifier is it's demanding and then it's also engaging. So when you engage it fully, um, each day is a long time and it's a rich event. So I would also say that too, it's demanding and engaging. The place that, that you are now in the mountains and the life that you're living there in the monastery how different is it from where you grew up? Mm. <laughs> I grew up in the inner city. I, I grew up in a small house on narrow streets, uh, a small two-bedroom house. There were seven children and my two parents. Um, so it's, it's quite different from growing up or, or living surrounded by 130,000 acres of wilderness. <laughs> 
Is that a bit of wilderness I can hear right there? Is there a bird or something that I can hear, Paul? <laughs> you you can hear what we call here a blue jay. It, it, it formal name is a stellar jay, but it, it squawks quite a bit. <laughs> At this time of year, the juveniles have hatched, uh, and they make a lot of noise. <laughs> is it outside your room on a, a nearby tree, or where is it? Yes, exactly. It's outside <laughs> my room on a nearby tree. So you, you were raised in this, did you say a two-bedroom house in Belfast? I did, Two-bedroom yeah. and seven children. Yes. How, how did that work logistically? Where did you sleep? Um, <laughs> I remember when we were young, we would sleep four to a, a double bed, you know, two, two children at the top and two children at the bottom, you know. The very young ones would sleep. You know, who were infants, they'd sleep with my parents in, in that room, and then the rest of us would sleep in the other bedroom. And where were you in that pecking order? Which end of the bed did you end up in? <laughs> well, I was in the middle. So I, I think at various times I ended up at either end of the bed. I, I was number four of seven, so. Right in the middle. <laughs> and do you have kind of fond memories of that, or, or was it just hard? Um, I have both kinds of memories. You know, we were quite poor when we were young. There was a lot of unemployment, so there's a lot of poverty. Quite often, we we would have, we would be trying to get enough food to eat at meal times. My mother would have the role, not only of cooking the food, but dishing it up. She, she would decide how much a, each child would get. You know? So the younger children would get less and the older children would get more. And uh, so that sense of there's a limited amount of, of food available to eat was just a standard and you were right in the middle, right between that line of more for the bigger ones and less for the little ones. Yes, I was right in the middle. <laughs> and, and then there was sort of societal oppression for the, the, the Protestants were the majority and the Catholics were the minority. So we grew up in the Catholic area. It was almost totally exclusively Catholic. And then there were other areas that were almost exclusively Protestant. Did you know any Protestants growing up? Um, when I was young, no. I, I, I think I didn't have any uh, close Protestant friends until I went to college. How big a, a part did the church play in your life as a kid? My uncle was a Catholic priest. My sister was a nun. My cousin was a, a Catholic order called Christian Brothers. There was a a strong religious presence in, in my family, as, as there was in our whole uh, Catholic community. And, and personally, when I was about six, I would go to church by myself every morning, not prompted by or obliged to by anyone else, but that was just uh, how I had absorbed the, the elements of religion and Catholicism that, that were around me. At six, you'd go by yourself every day. What did church give you back then? You know, when I reflected, I reflect on that, I sometimes think it was a big, quiet, <laughs> peaceful place. 
<laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> when, when you brought people in a tiny house, <laughs> a big, quiet, <laughs> peaceful place <laughs> is it has its own appeal. But also, just the environment I'd grown up in. Oh, that sound you just heard is uh, the, the, they're hitting a wooden board called the Han to announce that the meditation is about to begin. Okay, we'll try to talk in between the Han and the Blue Jay. Um, I had no idea your monastery was so noisy, Paul. Here I thought it was going to be the <laughs> garbage trucks and the crows around my place, but it's that's nothing on Tassajara. So there, there was the appeal of just the quiet and the space and the solitude. Do you remember believing in God? I, I do. S somehow or another, uh, I, I was influenced uh, quite a bit by my mother. Um, religion played a significant role in her life. I, I sometimes think of it as spirituality played a significant role in her life. And I, I do remember her at times reading aloud to me uh, a book called The Lives of Saints, of, you know, Catholic saints. You know, maybe I was three at the time when she read them. And that had a, a, an influence on me. And so... It was very standard in my life that in the evening I, I would pray for quite a while, and, and that was, you know, directed at God, which at that age for me was a fairly simple and straightforward uh, person, or the image, the being of God was a simple notion, and I would pray to God. I wonder what you prayed for back then. Well. Um, when I was in church, I prayed for the soul, the well-being of the soul that had the least prayers being said for it. <laughs> was that your own idea or was, <laughs> was that a suggestion? That was my own idea. <laughs> That's really lovely. In the evening, I, I would, um, I, I'm not quite sure where I got this from, whether I made it up or it, it, I read it somewhere, but I would review my day in the context of the Ten Commandments. Hopefully you hadn't broken too many of them as a small child. <laughs> well, <laughs> there's, some, there's some big hitting thou shalt nots in that list. No murder, no coveting. Yes. Um, well, there's, there's no lying and, and obeying your parents. There's, there's, <laughs> so I, I would do that. And then I would pray for a message from God to guide my life. That was a significant thing that I would do. And did that ever come? Well, I ended up in a Zen monastery, so maybe it did. <laughs> <laughs> Back then, surely it seems more likely that you would have ended up as a Catholic priest. Did you ever consider joining the priesthood? You, you know, I, I never did. It, 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 you know, and when I was when I was young and I was going to Mass every day, people would ask me that a lot. You know, they would assume this was my aspiration. And, and they, they, were, they were always a little dumbfounded when I said it wasn't. Because I, I didn't want to tell them that, that actually I was aiming a little higher. I, I didn't want to be a priest. I wanted to be a saint. <laughs> <laughs> so... When did this belief and this aspiration in in the Catholic 
context. When did that start to shift for you? Was there a moment where you lost your faith or, or was it more of a, a, a slower evolution or, or, or transformation? It was quite rapid and not surprisingly, it, it was uh, around the time I was going through puberty, which in, in its own way had an effect, but I think it was also just that coming in, into the teenage years and the, the deep questioning of everything had an impact on me. At one point, there was a determined attempt to recruit me to join a religious order. Somehow it backfired. I, I thought it as completely inappropriate that you would try to hustle. Maybe that's too hard a word, but somehow put some strong influence on a 12-year-old. As, as a 12-year-old, I thought, this is not appropriate. <laughs> And, and actually, it, it was a, a significant time that made me come to have a growing cynicism around Catholicism. That Blue Jay has a lot to say out that window, Paul. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes it baffles me at this time of night why they have so much to say. <laughs> Not sure if they're argumentative by nature, or uh, sometimes they're fighting over food. But at this time of night, that's not so likely. <laughs> Maybe they're checking through their day against the Ten Commandments and seeing how they held up. <laughs> yeah, we're having a religious debate. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> how present was the the conflict between Catholics and Protestants when you were growing up and in your teenage years? Was was that up close? In in my teenage years. There, there was a flare-up of sectarian violence. So, such was the nature of Northern Ireland that you, you couldn't vote in elections unless you were a property owner. Hmm. And since the Catholics were the impoverished minority, not many of them were property owners. And, and so there was a, a growing movement inspired by the activities of Martin Luther King, and they were they were marching for the right to vote. Sounds so basic now, but that's what they were marching for. And then somehow that turned into violence. The, in one day, the army fired and killed, I think, about a dozen people. And then that flared into uh, 30 years of violence and many deaths. And so that happened, that pivotal first shooting happened while I was a teenager. And then because I was living in this staunchly Catholic area, that that area was very active. There, there would be riots, there'd be killings and bombings and shootings. And so then that became a very significant part of my life. That must have been terrifying. Um. It, it was and it wasn't. You know, it's extraordinary what gets normalized. You know, it was a Catholic area, and the people who were rioting were Catholics, <laughs> and we knew each other. You know, like I remember once I was coming home from England, and I got on the bus, the public bus, and then these four young men, about twenty, got on the bus and announced they were hijacking the bus, and everybody had to get off. And 
since I came from a staunchly Catholic area and I knew they were driving the bus, they were most likely going to drive the bus to the staunchly Catholic area. I told them where I lived and they agreed that's where they were going. And they said, well, okay, sit down. We'll give you a ride. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and then they drove me up. They drove me up to the area in which I lived. And then they come over and politely said, excuse me, you'll have to get off now. We're going to burn the bus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. So what was it that led you to leave Belfast? Well, in some ways, it was quite simple. Uh, my mother died when I was 21. And up until then, I, I went through college quite quickly. You know, I finished when I was 20 and I trained as a civil engineer and I was working as a civil engineer. And then when she died, uh, a certain sense of obligation was released. And then at that point, I, I didn't really wish to be there. I, I felt the, the, the whole notion of Catholics and Protestants fighting each other and, and being so violent against each other, part of me just thought, neither of you are following the teachings of Christ. So, like, what is this about? I never felt like I wanted to be involved in that. And so I left. Where did you go? Well, I, I went over to London to work as an engineer uh, the, the English uh, had a particular dislike for the Irish and vice versa. The Irish had a particular dislike for the English. And so working in England uh, felt quite oppressive. You know? I, I worked for a big company and uh, people said good morning and good evening. And that was the extent of their friendliness <laughs> until three Aussies arrived and uh, were in the same office as me, and then the first evening they were there, at the end of work, they invited me out for a beer, and we became fast friends. I'm glad my compatriots did the right thing, Paul. They, they did. <laughs> <laughs> and so what, what adventure did you then set off, set off on with, with those new Australian friends? Four of us bought as many buses it was then, and uh, we drove around Europe for about three months, we parted ways and they went on back to Australia and I decided that I would travel overland from London to India and, and so I did. I would spend time in, in different countries and I, I realized how insular my experience had been just growing up in Northern Ireland. You know, the, the Middle East was the first time I'd been around. Muslims, you know, and I was fascinated. And then I realized I was also fascinated by how people relate to spirituality and how it makes meaning of their lives and how it influences their lives. And so wherever I went, I would be intrigued by those aspects of people's lives. And a lot of the people had, were suffering through the same kind of deprivations that I'd suffered through when I was young. And, and so I felt a deep kinship with them in that regard. And, and certainly I, I met lots of wonderful people who were extremely kind to me. That was quite lovely. <laughs> well, I discovered that if you're truly deeply interested in, in someone and how they live and how they think and how they express their spirituality, they, they usually respond very well. <laughs> so they usually invite you home for dinner. <laughs> You'd been heading to India. 
did you make it there? I, when I arrived at the border of Pakistan and India, they were having a war. The border posts were closed. And so I went back to Afghanistan and I spent time there, which was as wild then as it is now. So I was in Afghanistan and then someone who I met said, you, you could go to Japan and make lots of money teaching English. And so I went to Japan. <laughs> How did you get there from Afghanistan? I flew up to Novosibirsk in, in uh, I don't know if that was Kazakhstan. And then I took the Siberian Express across to the coast, Vladivostok, and then took a, a boat over to Japan. And so I got to see a little bit of Soviet Russia. Like I was sharing a, a, a train compartment with a, an army general who was drunk all the time and three opera singers. <laughs> <laughs> And, and and because he was so high-ranking, we would just go with him, and he would just say, we're coming in for dinner, you know, and then it didn't matter whether it was dinner time or not, we would be fed, and and the opera singers would occasionally do a, a performance for us. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski on ABC Radio. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Paul, you travelled on the Trans-Siberian Railway across Soviet Russia with a drunk army general and three opera singers and then caught a boat from Vladivostok to Japan. Once you arrived in Japan, Paul, how, how much money did you have to your name? I had $40. I had $40. I remember I had $40 and the YMCA was $17 a night and I thought, okay, <laughs> This is a challenge. <laughs> it's, and so how did you manage that? Could you get work, as, as someone had promised you, could you get work fairly easily? Well, I, I was very fortunate. I, I, had, I had learned one Japanese phrase, ryokan doku desu and which means where is the ryokan, the <laughs> Japanese word for in. Someone had told me they were very cheap to stay in. You know, in Afghanistan, I was staying in Kabul, and it was like, a dollar a night. So I thought, well, Japan will probably be $2 a night. <laughs> <laughs> so I was literally walking down the street, stopping strangers and saying my one phrase of <laughs> Japanese, real kind of, which, which, which was wonderfully absurd because I, when they answered, I didn't know what they were saying. <laughs> and then I asked one young man, and, and he turned out to belong to the high school English speaking club. And they adopted me and helped me find a, an apartment. I, I ended up living in a six tatami apartment. And the owners of the apartment had a Chinese restaurant next door. And somehow or another, I talked them into letting me move in and pay them after I earned some money. You must have an honest and face, I, Paul. 
I guess something. <laughs> <laughs> and then it all worked out. I, the, the next day I went and got a job teaching English. You've still got quite a distinctive and, Northern Irish brogue. Is is that the, the kind of English you were teaching your Japanese students? Oh, no. When, when I was teaching my Japanese students, I would say, repeat after me. Good morning, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, they would repeat with my full Northern Irish accent. And I'd say, no, 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 it's not sir, it's sir. <laughs> and the school I was teaching at, they decided to call it uh, British English, you know, so this would give them an edge, you know. They just didn't teach American English, they taught British English too. You mentioned that you found somewhere to stay with a family who ran a Chinese restaurant. Who did you meet while you were having lunch in that restaurant one day? Well, I met another Japanese guy who was wanted to practice his English. And then it turned out I was living less than a block away from the Soto Zen University where all the aspirant priests go to do their undergraduate studies. And, and he was uh, training to be a Soto Zen priest. And so through him, I got introduced to the principles of Zen. And he had a lot of books because he was studying English. He had a lot of books about Zen and English. I, I read many of his books and had many discussions with him about Zen. And I was just, from the very beginning, totally smitten. As far as I was concerned, this is it. <laughs> and somehow, <laughs> wisely or foolishly, that notion hasn't changed. You wanted to train in a temple. You wanted to learn more about this tradition of Buddhism, Zen mm. Buddhism. Could you enter a, a temple then in Tokyo? I remember when I had the pivotal conversation with my friend and, and I said to him, well, how do you get to go to a temple? And he said, well, you, you have to have a letter from your teacher to take to the temple. And I said, well, how do you get a teacher? And he said, well, if you were in the temple, you'd have a teacher. <laughs> that, that sounds like a Zen koan all its own, Paul. Yeah, yes, it does. It's, it's true catch-22. And then he, uh, then he said to me, but if you go to Thailand, they just take anybody. And, and so in a kind of wonderful, naive and straightforward way, I thought, okay, I'll go to Thailand. And that's what I did. As, as, as much as Japan was opaquely formal, the ties were utterly uh, casual and accepting, you know. You just say, I'd like to stay here. And they'd say, okay, sleep over there. And as, as long as you were sowed some interest in what in, in Buddhism and what they were practicing and didn't create a fuss, uh, you could stay there as long as you liked. And so I traveled around, staying in different places. And then eventually I ended up getting ordained as a monk and going off to the northwest of Thailand to a very remote place in the forest. And my, by that point, I had a, a, a deep intention to go there and just meditate as much as possible. Where did you stay in this remote part of Thailand? Where, what, what did your home look like? Well, in, in that part of Thailand, because of the geology of it, there's a lot of caves. And actually, the, the meditation hall that in, in our monastery was a cave. And there was another cave nearby 
that I lived in. You know, to a Western ear, it sounds very exotic, but there's something very practical about living in a cave, you know. It stays cooler in the summer and it stays warmer in the winter. And, and as long as you're okay with spiders and the occasional scorpion, it's a, uh, <laughs> it's a, a nice place to live. <laughs> well, what was inside your cave? I mean, did you have a bed? Well, um, is it stalactites or stalagmites that come up from the floor? One or the other. One or the other. Which <laughs> They were coming up from the floor, and someone had put in wooden boards resting on them. Sleeping on a, a wooden platform is was very standard in Thailand. And you just put a grass mat on the platform, and you'd sleep there. And then, then some of the times, I would actually just sleep outside. It was an overhang, and there was a wooden platform out there, too. It sounds exotic, or maybe austere, but in that part of Thailand at that time, that would have seemed like normal. And how did you spend your days? Well, we, we, we'd go begging for food at, at dawn. You go down to the village and you beg for food, and then you come back up to the temple, and we sit in a row in order of seniority. We do some chanting, and then when the teacher gives us a signal, we would eat, and when the teacher stops eating, you stop eating, so... And then you would go back to your own area, just do your practice. And my practice was meditation, and so I would do an hour sitting and an hour's walking, and uh, I would do that late into the night. Were you happy? Um, that was an interesting mix of uh, deeply happy and somewhat stressed, you know, under, uh, underneath. The serenity caused by the meditation, or brought about by the meditation, it, it was a very challenging schedule I had set for myself. So, very little sleep, a lot of meditation. We only ate once a day. Even though sleeping on a wooden platform was standard, <laughs> it was never easy for me. <laughs> I would have much preferred to have a mattress. <laughs> so, it was an interesting mix. What about wearing the robes? Did that feel natural? You know, when I left Northern Ireland, everything that happened after that felt surreal. <laughs> so this, this was just another surreal thing. <laughs> you know, my time in Jordan was surreal. My time in, uh, in Afghanistan was surreal. My traveling on the Siberian, Trans-Siberian Express was surreal. You know, my time in Japan was surreal. Like, this is just... One more uh, surreal, unbelievable experience. How long did you spend living in that cave and, and spending all of those disciplined hours meditating in the forests in Thailand? How long were you there for? Just, just about six months, and, and quite literally, by the end of six months, it, it was like all I could, it was, that was all I could take, you know? Uh, it was something in me just needed to uh, do something different. And I didn't have the kind of maturity to just ease up, you know, let myself recoup and continue. I, I, so I went back to Bangkok and, and then I um, met someone, and in another monk, an American monk from the U.S. He 
told me of a place in the West where I could practice called San Francisco Zen Center. And I went to San Francisco Zen Center, knocked on the door, and they said, you can't just come and knock on the door. And I thought, but I just did. <laughs> and that, that center, that city center is in the neighborhood of Haight-Ashbury, and this is the early 70s, yeah. so I imagine there's still a whole lot of countercultural activity and energy and, and intensity happening. How big a contrast was that for you who'd lived this very intense, disciplined, solitary, religious life in the wilds of Thailand to, to arrive in the, the centre of that time in San Francisco? It was just another surreal experience. <laughs> you know? it, it couldn't have seemed any stranger to me if everybody walked around naked, I would have just thought, okay, it's a warm climate. I guess they don't need clothes. <laughs> <laughs> you you went from the, the city centre to the place that I'm speaking to you now, to Tassajara, and began spending a lot of time there. What was different about the way you were a Buddhist in that context than what you'd become familiar with in Thailand? Well, in Thailand, we... we spent our time, most of our time, alone in, in the forest. And so, needless to say, we, we weren't talking. And, well, no one was monitoring. The expectation was you would spend most of your time either walking or sitting meditation. And I arrived at Tassajara on the 4th of July and in the afternoon, and they were just about, about to start their 4th of July party. You know, and so they were eating pizza. I don't know if they were drinking beer with maybe just soda, but they were playing uh, rock and roll music. And at, at that point, the, the wilds of Thailand forest seemed much more civilized <laughs> than, <laughs> than Tassajara swimming pool in the 4th of July. Did you think, oh, wait a minute, maybe this isn't proper Zen or, or proper Buddhism? Where, where have I ended up? You know, um, I had read Zen, My Beginner's Mind, the, the, the book of Zen by the Finder, and I was deeply struck by it. And I, and I had this notion that any place he would have started would be a good place. And, and certainly that challenged it. That, that first initial experience certainly challenged my notion that this is a strong practice place. But over the next couple of days, in talking to people, I felt like they had a deep uh, sincerity about practice. Now, how they were doing it didn't make any sense to me at all, but I thought they were deeply sincere. And so you stayed. And so I stayed, and um, here I am, back all these years later, having gone through the full system the whole way up to being abbot. And now I'm a senior Dharma teacher and we're talking on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Paul, like when you find yourself sitting next to someone you know, on a plane or, or chatting to someone at a party and it's revealed that you're a Zen teacher and they ask you, well, what, what's Zen? What, what's your answer? What, what do you tell people who ask that open question to you? What do you say? You know, it's it's so interesting. Not many people ask, what is Zen? I do remember I was at a party once, and, and someone said, what do you do? And I said, well, I teach meditation. 
And he said, you can make a living doing that? That <laughs> <laughs> um, seemed extraordinary to him. But one of the intriguing things about Zen is, as far as I can tell, most people have an, a, a notion about what is Zen. You know, Zen is this kind of cool, scaringly difficult and disciplined thing, you know, that of being present in the moment. So, so usually they ask about the lifestyle more than they ask what is Zen. Um, that's my experience. And and when people do ask me, I, I usually uh, try to respond sincerely in a way that I think would make sense to them. Like I would say something like, it, it's, it's a process that helps you wake up and see what's happening in your life and inside of you. One of the things that you started or, or helped start at the San Francisco Zen Center was its outreach program. Who did you want to bring the teachings of Zen to? Mm, mostly to, to, to bring them to situations where, where people were in challenging environments and that this could help alleviate their suffering and help give their life some guidance and support. And so one of them was hospice. Uh, another one was a, um, I was volunteering at a uh, residential uh, recovery program where indigent men would come and they would live there for six months and help them sober up and establish their life again. And then we had some other programs too. We did some programs with the homeless and still do. And Paul, when there's so much that's difficult in someone's life, you know, not having a home or addiction or substance abuse, this might sound like a, I don't know, a, a, a luxury that can wait till later on a meditation process. Like let's get someone a bed first or a job or let's get them sober. How have you seen what you bring or, or the teachings that you help convey? How can that help people who are in such extreme circumstances? Well, it's more in conjunction with let's get them what they need in a material way. You know, let's help them get sober or let's, let's have them be in a, a place to die when we started our own hospice. A place to die that takes care of them and, and helps them to suffer less physically and emotionally. And, and then also just by taking care of them, let them see um, how to live the rest of their days until they die. So the practical needs and the spiritual needs are interwoven. I mean, that's, that's my notion of uh, Zen practice. And have you seen, have you seen firsthand how learning about these teachings have helped people, whether they're facing their own mortality or, or other kinds of suffering? In, in many instances, the, the teachings aren't articulated, you know, they're, they're not presented as a doctrine. They're, they're exemplified, you know, they're embodied. It's, it's taking care of people, respecting them, attending to their needs is the teaching you know, rather than some abstract doctrine that says you should be this or you should be that. Uh, once I was taking care of someone in the hospice 
And he said to me, do you know what I believe in? And I said, no, what do you believe in? And he said, super glue. <laughs> and I said, yes, I agree. I believe in super glue too. It's very, very helpful. And he says, do you know what else I believe in? And I said, what else? And he said, I believe that fence over there was made of wood that came from a tree. And I said, that's very Zen of you. And he said, that's Zen? And I said, yeah, that about sums it up. And uh, he, he hadn't startled me. He hadn't said anything blasphemous. And, and then when he discovered that I had no uh, particular notions about what he should believe or what he should not believe or some Zen thing that I needed to tell him, um, I, th I think his own natural process supported him to, to find the, the fortitude and, and compassion to face his death. You know? So to me, that, that's more the no method of a Zen way of being of support to the dying. Have you worked on bringing some of your experience back to your hometown, back to Belfast? Mm. Yes, I have. In, in the uh, late 90s, a good friend of mine who's also a Zen priest, he said, how about we go back to Belfast? Uh, and my, my first response was, that would never work. No? Why not? Well, th this was a place where, where, where I had left. It was steeped with violence, you know, where the, the difference between a Catholic and Protestant was a deep chasm that could never be crossed. Uh, this was a 300-year-old uh, battle between Catholic and Protestant. And I hadn't given that much thought. I mean, all these other things were happening in my life. And... Uh, I had just set that aside. So it took me some time to think it through, to, to get to a place where you think maybe it would be possible to do something. And so we did. And we went back and we led a retreat and we started the, the first steps of moving in tandem between starting a, a Zen center and trying to contribute in some way to the peace and reconciliation of Northern Ireland. And, and what did people there make of you? Was there a lot of interest or, or were you a curiosity? Um, both. <laughs> I think at that time they were used to a lot of people coming from all places over the world to fix them. You know, <laughs> like someone will come in and do a weekend workshop on nonviolent communication. And, you know, this is what these people need. They need to be able to talk to each other in a nonviolent way, which, you know, is true. But after all they've been through, uh, it, it was a little naive to think that that's going to happen on the weekend. So, so it became clear to me very quickly that if I was going to do this, it, it, it was more the work of a lifetime than a weekend. Uh, and and so then, having come from this staunchly Catholic, impoverished neighborhood and gone off and done all these exotic, uh, strange things, I was something of a curiosity. You know, people would write newspaper articles saying, Paul Heller, 
from the Lower Falls Road. That <laughs> <laughs> uh, sort of identified me, you know, as as a truly, uh, you know, odd person. <laughs> now is back here in this exotic role, but over times we, we've uh, established the Zen Center. Uh, at one point, I ended up being the city chaplain of Belfast and, and, and hosting a class on mindfulness in City Hall. And 300 people came. That would have been something hard for you to predict as a, as a kid, that that should ever happen. Yeah, yes, it would have. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe those, all those hours you spent quietly reflecting away in the, the church by yourself, who knows, maybe you were setting something in motion then. You know, I've often thought that in some ways I think uh, that's when I started to practice, you know, sitting still and quiet in a spacious environment. That, that sort of works for describing doing zazen. Paul, I should let you get back to your schedule, but thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. It was my pleasure, Sarah. It was lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. Goodbye. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.